Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you so much, Hilde. A very important show today. Another in a series on biomarker testing with two outstanding guests, Dr. Hilary Hamill and researcher and Dr. Nino Sarechi. Hilde, take it away. Welcome, everyone, to our new podcast that's titled, Have You Heard of Biomarker Testing? If so, how to get it when you need it. This is our fifth podcast on biomarker testing. So with five of uh, five of these podcasts, you can tell it's an important topic, a very important topic. And we have two fabulous guests with us today to help us learn more about biomarker testing and um, how to get it when you need it. The focus is on what's called precision medicine. Nino, I'm hoping you'll start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in biomarker testing, and what the heck is precision medicine? Sure, I'm happy to answer that question. My name is Nino Sarechi. I'm a molecular pathologist as well as clinical pathologist, and I practiced at Columbia University for many years before joining a lawsuit at Lilly and now Lilly Oncology. I got very interested in biomarker testing very early in my career as, as a pathologist. In pathology, our job is really to diagnose the disease and identify patients who are amenable to certain therapies. Traditionally, that was based on the, the type of tumor you had. So if you had ovarian or lung cancer, you received a certain type of chemotherapy. What I found intriguing about biomarker-directed therapy or precision medicine was that there was something specific about your tumor or a patient's tumor that made a specific drug work only against those tumor cells. And so you were not only specifically just targeting the cancer cell, um, you were also targeting that specific patient's cancer cell. And I saw immediately the power in that, I think, as a young pathologist and got very interested in molecular pathology, which is where the, the majority of that, that testing happens. Since then, I've, been, I've, I've become more uh, involved in drug development through my work at Loxo and at Lilly. And I think there, I started to really understand how the diagnostic portion of what we do in pathology laboratories actually enables the use of precision medicines or targeted therapies within um, the drug development space and, and within oncology. So if I were to answer your question, Hildy, precision medicine is really taking uh, a patient, taking uh, their genomics, their biomarker status, whether that be a genome or protein, and identifying what makes it special and identifying which me medicines are most uh, effective and safe for use in that patient based on not only what the tumor is, but the, in, the, 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 the workings of that tumor, um, uh, which are measured usually by biomarkers. So would you say that most advanced cancers, we're talking about lung cancer in particular, but it, it applies to other cancers, that most um, advanced cancers often start out with uh, a more general chemotherapy um, and then some other decisions are made? Or is that not true anymore? Can you tell us like how to disentangle that choice of drugs? I would focus on lung cancer for your question specifically because there I think we're seeing a shift from this more general chemotherapy approach up front with sort of later lines of therapy that maybe being more experimental and more targeted 
to a world where we know that in first-line setting, there are several drugs that are approved if you're biomarker positive, which really, to me, makes testing comprehensively upfront at the diagnosis of advanced lung cancer exceedingly critical. There's no reason to wait to do other uh, rounds of therapies for um, some of the biomarker-directed uh, therapies that are available. And patients really do better when, when they get those, those uh, drugs up front. So to me, in lung cancer, this is a perfect example of when you want to test comprehensively, fully. What, that, what I mean by that is test for all of the, the biomarkers that are relevant for non-small cell lung cancer, and you want to do it as early as possible at diagnosis, because that's when we should be using those targeted therapies that are approved in that setting. It's a great question. Would you say if somebody was listening and they have either themselves or they have a relative who have advanced lung cancer and they've started in on a general uh, chemotherapy, are they still able to to um, to have a precision medicine? Is that still an option? A great question. I think the answer to that is complicated and needs to be addressed with your physician. I think most certainly what I would advise to that patient is absolutely advocate for having that discussion with your care team, your oncologist, the nurse practitioner, whoever you see uh, on a regular basis and ask, you know, what is my, what are the genomics of my tumor? Why am I on this therapy? If I am positive for a biomarker, should I switch? Um, those are, those are really, uh, those are really great questions that patients can ask. And there are going to be various reasons why an oncologist, a healthcare practitioner will have made the decision they made. It's important for you to know that, though. It's important for you to ask the question and really understand what the decision was. I can't say for each patient it's going to be different, but, but it is an important uh, question to ask and a point of advocacy for yourself as a patient or uh, your loved one who is a patient. But if someone's listening and has never really heard of biomarker testing because where they're being treated it's not being offered or discussed. Um, what I hear you saying is it's not too late if you're already being treated um, in some other form or fashion, particularly in chemo, general chemotherapy. It's not too late to, um, to, to have that as an option, um, the biomarker um, or precision medicine. It's never inappropriate to ask, I will say that. I think it's, it's actually the best answer the best choice for you is to always is to bring it up and ask your physician what what what's possible, what's been done, and what should be done. I will I'll throw in that you know biomarker testing it's it's it really it used to be sort of um, you know sexy and, and and kind of advanced. It, it should be what is done, right? So so you know you really need to st you really need to be asking your physician if you haven't heard about the biomarkers that you've been tested for why you haven't been tested because you really ought to have been. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's a, an area where, where patients and, and their loved ones can really be advocates as we continue to educate and shape physicians in their practice patterns as well. So, so how do they do that? So as you said, there are a bunch of biomarkers that have already been identified. Um, so how, how is that testing conducted? A great question, because there's a lot of variation how that testing is conducted. So traditionally, and mostly because in the early days, there were only a handful of biomarkers that you tested, after uh, a, a, either a portion of the tumor uh, is resected for biopsy or the, the, the tumor is resected fully, uh, that would be sent for what we call sequential testing or single biomarker testing. So 
So you'll be tested with one piece of tumor, piece of your tumor for EGFR, another for KRS, another for the ALK, another for ROS. So you sort of go sequentially down the line in how you test. And those, those testing methodologies are very basic. They're, they've been around for years. And so a lot of labs offer that testing. And Unfortunately, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but so KRAS and ALK and EGFR, that all the things that you mentioned, those are particular biomarkers that one might be positive for or not. Would you say that's the case? That's correct. That's correct. And essentially what physicians have done in the past and what some still do, and I can't say that this is wrong, it's probably just not most efficient, they test sequentially. So EGFR mutations are some of the most common mutations you find in lung cancer. And so to start with that as a, as a potential uh, screen for a biomarker positive and then go on to the rarer biomarkers has been an approach that some physicians have taken in the past. I would argue that today, because we have upwards of 10 biomarkers that we should be testing for in lung cancer, um, that that single gene approach, that sequential approach is probably not um, possible anymore. And the reason for that is, particularly when we are dealing with advanced stages of lung cancer, the amount of tissue you have for testing is actually quite small. And so you want to get as much bang for your buck as possible in testing. So today, and the NCCN guidelines, which is a professional organization that oncologists follow and, 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 and guidelines that they follow in their treatment, actually specifically calls out testing that happens for multiple biomarkers from one portion of the tumor. So you give one portion of tumor for testing and you're tested for most, if not all of those biomarkers. And that's really the most efficient way to test uh, for biomarkers today. There are multiple tests that are in use today that do comprehensive testing of biomarkers within lung cancer. And you might be looking at uh, websites and reading in the literature, you'll see some reference or referral reference to NGS or next generation sequencing. This is a a type of genetic testing that happens on your tumor that looks at all of the various biomarkers that would be possible to be mutated within the lung within your lung cancer and it does so using that one piece of tissue that you would have done you know looking just for the egfr mutation or just for the the, the alk fusion and so it's an opportunity to look more comprehensively using uh, the same amount of tissue it's important to say not all NGS or next generation sequencing is the same. And so you'll want to speak to your physician and make sure that he or she understands what exactly is covered under that NGS assay or test. Um, you'll want to choose with your physician the NGS test that covers the most number of biomarkers that are relevant for non-sulfur lung cancer. The other terminology you may see is CGP or comprehensive genomic profiling. That usually is based on NGS technology, but there's another word that you'll see thrown out there that suggests that that test looks at all the relevant biomarkers for your cancer. So it's important to have this conversation with your physician and ensure that, that the testing that's selected is the most efficient use of your tissue for the types of biomarkers that you're looking for. I have many questions that I want to ask you, Nina, but um, I'm going to introduce our other guest who can also participate um, in this conversation. And um, welcome, Hillary. Um, we're just so pleased to have you here today. Each person who gets lung cancer is a human being who has different experiences. And um, um, so welcome and thank you for being willing to share your story with us. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute delight to talk about my experience. Um, and I, um, I'm, I think I might be the poster child for precision medicine. And I, I think I owe my life to um, comprehensive genomic testing. So I'm super excited to talk about my experience. Um, and my story kind of, I think, as I'm hearing you talk, Nino, you know, thank you for sharing all your wisdom. And I feel like my story sort of is a, a great sort of example of everything that you've um, talked about. So um, I am living with stage four RET positive lung cancer for like the past two and a half to three years. Um, uh, in April of 2021, um, I was just leaning over and rubbing my neck when I felt a rock hard solid lump right above the collarbone and, you know, red alarm bells went off in my head because um, I, I do have a background as a family medicine physician and um, a lump in this location, we have a term for it. It's, we call it cancer until proven otherwise. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so it was, it was not one of those things I, I, you know, sometimes we just as moms and doctors and whatever, we sometimes push through every push through little things, minor things. But this was something like, oh boy, I need to get this checked out. So I went in to see my doctor. Um, we ran some tests. Um, we ultimately ended up um, getting a CT scan of of from the neck on down to the pelvis, um, which showed I, I had a left upper long mass um, and um, some small masses in both of my lungs and a bunch of lymph nodes. And I remember um, the radiologist um, had commented that, um, you know, while this was concerning for cancer, uh, given my young age and non-smoking status, that a fungal infection seemed probably more likely. And so for a while, we were really hoping for tuberculosis. <laughs> um, but anyways, we, we went to get a, a biopsy of the lymph node and um, they did a needle biopsy of that. And um, ultimately, the results, um, and I wouldn't be on this podcast if, if it wasn't cancer, the results showed that it was a neuroendocrine, a poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma, which was a little bit perplexing. Um, neuroendocrine carcinomas, it's just, a, um, you know, it can occur anywhere in the body. And um, as Nino pointed out, traditionally, treatments have been based off of um, and generally speaking, are, are based off the organ of origin. And we didn't, I mean, I had a bunch of lung masses, but, you know, they they really rely on the pathology to sort of make that like, you know, what the what's the primary um, cancer diagnosis. And so um, the pathologist, and this was at my local institution, had thought that maybe, maybe this could be a medullary thyroid cancer. And um, it didn't really fit. I didn't really have a thyroid mass, but that was the initial sort of maybe. Um, and I think that's what actually got me early next generation sequencing because uh, medullary thyroid cancer commonly is associated with a RET mutation, interestingly enough. And so um, I was brought up at tumor boards and they said, well, okay, we were going to do this next generation sequencing. I don't even know, even as a, like a family physician two and a half years ago, I, I don't even know if I knew what that was. Um, 
So we got that cooking. It takes about three weeks to get back. And so um, in the meantime, um, we were running more tests, more bad news. Cancer was in my bones. I had six spots in my brain. Um, I'm reading about poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma. And I'm reading things like dismal prognosis, um, no known standard of care, poorly researched. And I honestly thought this was like a death sentence. Um, it was it was such a rough time and I was getting sicker and sicker. Um, and we were working on getting a second opinion consultation at Mayo Clinic. And um, I think it was like five weeks or so um, from the time that I'd gotten in for the, or found the lymph node maybe until I, I got in to see um, um, a specialist at Mayo Clinic, which is my nearest comprehensive cancer center um, and um, where they had a neuroendocrine specialist. And um, the wonderful oncologist that I saw was like, um, well, here are the chemos that I could offer you, but I really think we should wait till we get this next generation sequencing back. It should be back soon, I would imagine. You're young, female. This seems like it could be lung cancer. You know, I think um, there's a chance we could find some, you know, driver mutations. And, um, and what is and the driver mutation? Yeah, thank you so much. So, um, well, and, and let me just say, um, and I'll I'll get to kind of what that means um, here. Um, that afternoon, um, my results came back and it showed that I had a RET fusion. And so a RET fusion, um, you know, might be better half explaining what a fusion is, but it's basically, um, and, and, you know, I don't think a mutation is the right word, but it's, it's an abnormality um in the dna that happens to the cancer that makes a protein that causes the cancer to grow out of control and and it's such a, a deleterious sort of thing that happens um that it ends up sort of driving the cancer so it ends up you know lots of cancers have lots of mutations but it's it's a very key mutation that um ends up causing um, or contributing significantly to um, cancer growth. And so um, we found out that I had that RET fusion and I had known a little bit about like RET because of the misdiagnosis with the medullary thyroid cancer. I had heard um, there was, you know, like patients that had been doing well on targeted therapy with um, manageable side effects, minimal side effects, and had been doing well for several years um the treatments were somewhat brand new i think um the ret targeted therapy that i was started on and am on still today um had just been approved one year earlier um from my diagnosis and so that was the first time i had hope and it was such a beautiful important feeling for me to have hope that there was a treatment that i could you know tolerate and and might work for me and might you know, keep me alive um, and living well. And um, yeah, and so we were able to get it approved. Um, I started on it. Um, I um, got a near complete response from it. Um, it melted the spots in my brain, which was probably the best news ever. You know, they just disappeared. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, that was just the best news ever. And um, 
and yeah, I'm still on um, that treatment today. So um, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, I mean, I, I truly believe that I, I don't think I would be alive. I personally believe I don't, that I would not be alive if I hadn't done biomarker testing and found something targetable for, for my particular type of cancer. So I've had experience with two friends, um, one who had a neuroendocrine tumor. I had spoken with her. Uh, she was in another state. So, I was, you know, we were talking back and forth and I had spoken with her having um, had uh, listened to a lecture on neuroendocrine tumors and the relationship to lung and hers was not diagnosed as lung. So this is, so that's case one. Case two was a good friend of mine who did have diagnosis of lung cancer, but who mm. was her two positive, mm. which um, mo there's more publicity around this. And it's mostly associated with breast cancer. Um, and so my friend um, was not doing well on his current uh, regimen. And I, of course, you know, I practice law with no license and medicine with, I, you know, I don't, I don't mind offering an opinion. So I said to him, why don't, why don't you have some conversation about maybe one of the breast cancer drugs? Would that make any sense? So I'm going to ask Nino, um, what are your thoughts about that? And I know actually one other one, someone who had pancreatic cancer, but who had some kind of a, um, biomarker, and this was way early before biomarkers were discussed as frequently, but he did this investigation and he convinced someone at Tufts in Boston to go outside of the box because it wasn't like, here's the box and here are the six drugs that are used for lung cancer and you can't use something else. So anyway, those are my three experiences. Can you talk a little bit about that um, how biomarkers may be uh, more associated with a different organ system, but might be targetable using some other kind of medication. Sure, sure. I just, I just want to start by saying, Hillary, thank you so much for sharing your story. I like it. Never, it never ceases to amaze me the stories that you hear about the impact of the diagnostic portion of of the workup and 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 the use of targeted therapies, particularly not muscle lung cancer. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> One of the stories uh, to tell you there um, is around, um, you know, when when I was a when I was I think a first or second year attending in molecular pathology, looking at you know case after case would come in, and we had our own NGS panel at my in my lab, and we would test patients. And that first time that you see that alk fusion come through, right? Or mm -hmm. you know, and which is not as rare by the way as, as RET, but it's still fairly rare, about five percent of lung mm -hmm. cancers. Or even when you would see that EGFR come in, you knew that that patient had an mm -hmm. option that would potentially change their lives. Um, not always, but, 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 but the, the likelihood yeah. was there that they would respond. And so it is, even as a pathologist who never saw the patient, it was like, yes, we got one, right? We got <laughs> one for this patient. And, and, you know, like every day that's, you know, you know, if that would happen once a week, that's, that's enough. You know, if that happens once a month, that's enough mm -hmm. because it is, it's truly a life altering. So, so thank you for sharing your story. Um, to, to your question, the, um, you know, the the use of more comprehensive genomic profiling or, or large scale sequencing and other tumors up front, it's still developing. I think in non-small cell lung cancer, it's pretty clear you got to do it at diagnosis, right? 
There are a few other cancers where there are guideline recommended uh, uh, genomic testing up front uh, that may or may not be amenable to uh, large-scale sequencing like CGP or NGS testing. That said, your friend, it sounds like, asked for testing and as a result, identify biomarkers that might make them more amenable to clinical trials, might make them more amenable to, to research down the line, which for them could be potentially very helpful. Um, so I, I, I think that all patients should talk to their physicians about when the appropriate time for testing is, what type of testing should be done, how big the panel has to be. You know, in, in colon cancer, they recommend certain biomarkers to be tested. Those could be done sequentially, they could also be done by NGS, and who knows what you will find outside of that, right? That might make you amenable to other, other, um, uh, uh, other drugs, whether they be approved or under, um, under um, investigation, under clinical trials. So I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile for patients to engage in that discussion with their doctors. I will say that there are financial barriers to testing. So comprehensive genomic profiling, NGS, these larger panels, are now starting to be covered by commercial insurance companies. I think more and more we're seeing that. It's wonderful. Uh, but even in non-falsal lung cancer, even in non-falsal lung cancer, they're not always covered, where, where it's clear that there's a, a, a use case there, right? So, so also for patients, do talk to your physicians about patient assistance programs, financial assistance programs, programs through some pharma sponsors who might be paying for this type of testing, right? The, money should not be the reason you don't get tested, okay? There's, there are ways around this. And um, it, it, is, it is the ultimate um, uh, unfortunate story to hear that patients choose not to get tested because of the money. I think we should be able to figure that out um, because it's so, it, it's so essential, particularly in non-social lung cancer, to get the right test at the right time. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I, and in what you're saying also brings up another topic that we've covered at least three um, podcasts on, which is um, inequality in access to medical care. So, you know, as you mentioned, if you're financially comfortable and these things come up, um, there's no question you're going to do what's very best uh, for you. But there are a number of communities we looked at, um, Asian communities, we looked at Hispanic communities, we looked at people in rural areas where um, having these fancy like uh, Mayo Clinic, lucky, lucky, I live in Boston, hello, you know, we have, <laughs> we have Dana-Farber, Mass General Hospital, and many other great options for the best care you can possibly think of. But if you're living out in a very, uh, in a rural area where maybe you have to drive an hour to get to a grocery store, these kinds of opportunities are not available. So um, I don't know if, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult um, question, but I don't know if you have any thoughts, either one of you, on how we might be able to face um, kind of um, leveling the playing field, as they say, but making these um, opportunities more available to patients. It, again, either one of you. I mean, I, I think it's it's really disappointing that um, insurance isn't more um, stepping up to cover it more. Um, so that's, I mean, it's it's especially where it's very well established in in lung cancer. Um, patient assistance programs, though, um, seem to be um, pretty 
generous from my personal experience that I've um, encountered. Um, and but it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough tough issue. I mean, I, I just think nobody questions testing breast cancer for estrogen receptors, her two progesterone receptors. These are like standard things. And so I think, um, you know, payers sort of need to get with the times um, on this issue where, especially where in areas where it's well established. Right. And we're doing better with lung cancer in terms of screening there's going to be a broader um, uh, swath of patients who might now be able to get test uh, screened, whereas that you know wasn't available before. So it's about pushing, and it's just that you know odd circumstance for lung cancer, which is the number one cancer killer, um, which is a horrible statistic to think about, but it it just is. Um, but how we have to keep pushing uh, to get more um, su financial support. And even in simple ways, I, I, I know someone who's um, very limited in their finances, which is a whole other group, no matter where you're living, if, you, if you're living just around the poverty level or below, um, simple things like getting a ride to uh, the hospital for for any kind of treatment or testing often is prohibitive. It's just, it's too expensive. So when something like biomarker testing comes up as an, as an idea and it has such potential for um, life, you know, saving lives, um, you know, I, I guess that's just plain it. We, meaning who, like the American public has to push harder on finding ways to to get coverage for people who can't can't afford it i'll 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 just add that i think it, it's fair we we should be fair to insurance companies i think we've seen some really good progress over the last i, I can't believe i just said that but i will say it um <laughs> we have to give credit for credit to we, we've seen we've seen developments uh in coverage particularly non social lung cancer for large panels i think this is great i think we have further to go and when you think about sort of the barriers outside of coverage, there are multiple barriers to why patients don't get tested, right? So, you know, we, you can give it away for free and people still don't do it. That's, that's a lesson that we've learned uh, in some of our practice. And so what are the other reasons patients don't get tested? Some of it is, it's hard right now. You have to, your, your oncologist has to arrange with the pathology laboratory, which may be in a different state, it may be in a different, you know, it's certainly in a different hospital a lot of times, unless you're at Mayo or at Columbia where I, where I practice, and, and they have to coordinate, you know, where to send, which specimen to get, where to send it, what test to order, right? And all of that takes time. The pathologist now has to go pull the block, identify which section to send. It, there's a lot of intricacies in what has to happen. And oftentimes that's enough of a reason for, for physicians to just say, you know what, we're going to go the thing with the thing we know. We're going to do EGFR and ALK and ROS, uh, EGFR, ALK and ROS and be done, right? So uh, because it, it is complicated and, and the, the, even the things that, you know, the, the requisition form that you use to order the test can be very confusing. And then fast forward to when you get those results back in two to three weeks, they can also be very confusing. And a physician looks at it and says, I don't even know what this says, right? Like this is just too hard. And so there's a, there are multiple areas where I think we're making a ton of progress. 
insurance coverage is some of it, you know, ensuring that we have reports that are digestible by physicians. I think some labs are doing a really nice job there. Um, they even have patient-centered reports out there now, which is, which is great. So, so physicians and patients learn about the, the genomics of their tumor. But we have a long way to go on making it easy. So, so Hildy, one of the things that I think about a lot is, wouldn't it be really cool if when you send your lung tumor to the pathology laboratory, in addition to doing the diagnosis, this is lung cancer, they also can do the genomics, right? So the genomics becomes so easy, so just mainstream that they can do it in their own lab. Not only would that make it easier for them to do it in, in real time and get that result back to you, right? But then it actually becomes part of the report, the report that goes to the physician. So it's all part of a comprehensive diagnosis. We do that right now with immunohistochemistry, a type of testing that happens in the laboratory to help diagnose, you know, the type of cancer you have. HER2 is a perfect example in breast cancer of, of the type of testing that we use this for. Immunohistochemistry is uh, it's a type of test you do in the pathology laboratory, oftentimes to establish what type of tumor you're dealing with. So is this a lung cancer? Is this a thyroid cancer? It helps the pathologist identify what type of tumor it is. You can use it for biomarker testing. So uh, Hildy, you, you raised immuno, uh, immunotherapy. PDL1 testing is immunohistochemistry testing. So that is done in the pathology laboratory. There's a reason why, by the way, 80-something percent of lung cancer patients get PDL1 testing, and only 50% of lung cancer test patients get full comprehensive profiling by NGS because it's easy to do IHC. And PDL1, just, just to, to clarify, listen, everybody who's listening to this podcast should also tune into our podcast on what is the immune system and um, immunotherapy 101. We tried to break it down so it's understandable. There's so much um, information that's so complicated and so confusing. And I don't know anyone personally who said, I can't wait to go back and take a an adult ed course in genetics. I don't know that person, but I'm sure there are some. So the PDL1 um, is related to the um, immune system and looking at, you know, for immunotherapy. So um, that's, that's a so whole correct. different test than the biomarker testing, correct? But, but, but it is done, it's done in the same type of patient, right? So, so on the same tumor that you send for biomarker testing by genetics, you have to do PDL1. And what we see is 80% of patients get tested for PDL1. 50% of patients get the, the, the more comprehensive genomic testing, right? So, so there's a reason there. It's because it's easy to do PDL1 testing in your, lab, in your laboratory. So I think the, the, the ideal world that, you know, Nino Sorecci sees in his mind for, for, for all cancers, but particularly non-small cell lung cancer, is at the point of pathological diagnosis, when I, as a pathologist, am under my microscope looking at the cells, looking at what type of tumor this is, I'm also getting information in my laboratory about the genetics and the biomarkers, so that when I put it all together in a report to send to an oncologist, ah, now it's all there, and it's easy, and, and I've done it all. And so, look, I think we're not far from there, actually. There are vendors out there who are offering technologies, and I think we, we as a group of patient advocates, physicians, scientists, you name it, we got to do it, um, we need to be pushing for that reality, because when, we, when, when it becomes easy and not sexy at all, when it just becomes what you do, that's when we're going to see everyone get tested or the majority of people get tested. That's great. That's great. So, um, Hillary, uh, you had such wonderful um, 
results from your experience. Um, is there anything you would recommend for other people who are um, diagnosed now with lung cancer? Um, anything you learned from, not from your career as a physician, but from mm -hmm. your uh, experience as a patient? Is there anything that you would say, I learned this and I, I wish everyone knew this? Oh boy. I mean, I've, I mean, most of, uh, you know, the advice that I would give is, is as a patient and, you know, my world as a, a physician just seemed, it, it was just so far separated from the advanced world of cancer as we know it. Um, but I just wanted to quick say, you know, I love your visit and that seems so straightforward. And, and I, I hope we see that future of, you know, having it all worked in together. And, and I was just going to add, um, you know, um, on the patient side of, of all the, you know, difficulty, you know, arranging um, things, um, ordering next generation sequencing and all the complexities, um, you know, patients will sometimes have difficulty scheduling biopsies, there's delays, there's, um, you don't get enough tissue or, um, you know, it's, it's hard to also get biopsies um, in lung cancer. Um, lung biopsies are not super easy and, you know, um, bone biopsies often aren't the easiest either. It often don't work for comprehensive genomic sequencing. So um, I know a lot of patients who want to get next generation sequencing or, or maybe on progression, which is a whole different podcast, I think, but, um, but, you know, they can't get the tissue. So when you have the tissue, it's absolutely precious and um, needs to be used for every um, available uh, option. I think, well, uh, comprehensive genomic sequencing de definitely needs to be prioritized when you have it. So, um, so, so those are some of the things, um, but, you know, um, I think it is helpful to have a comprehensive cancer center um, directing your care. Um, a lot of um, biomarker-driven cancers are considered rare. Um, red is 1% to 2% of lung cancers, um, so um, it is considered a rare cancer. And neuroendocrine lung cancer is also somewhat rare. And so having um, specialists that, um, uh, you know, um, have seen rare stuff is, is really, really, really important. Um, or who have um, access to the cutting edge research and up-to-date information. And I know that is a challenge for some people out there to have access to um, academic cancer centers and comprehensive cancer centers, but um, I think it's it's really important to at least get a second opinion. And, you know, sometimes people will um, get a second opinion or, or get a consultation, but then once things have kind of calmed down, we'll have their care at a, um, you know, local oncology clinic and then have somebody they can kind of reach out to. So I think that is really important. Um, I think finding a community of, of patients like yourself is really important. Um, uh, important to kind of compare notes on side effects and, and what's the latest clinical trials. And, you know, so finding 
um, a community that you can kind of relate to and vent to and, you know, um, patients who are like yourself has been really um, helpful for me. It's nice um, not to feel like you're alone, you know, yes, like exactly. you're the only one. That's exactly. a terrible feeling. Exactly. So those are some, a few things that I think, um, and then I think it's also, um, like I sort of alluded to, um, you know, eventually targeted therapies do stop working, uh, especially well in advanced disease. Um, and I think it's important to consider, um, trying to get biopsies on progression and um, looking, I was looking for something targetable, I think is, is important to keep in mind. So. Well, I want to thank both of you so much. Um, I know right now, so what comes to mind for me, and it's beyond what we have time for, um, is a discussion of liquid biopsies, where it's not necessarily uh, the case that you have to go in and have sections of that tumor. And hopefully that would make um, accessing biomarkers um, uh, easier in some ways. I'm, and I know this is going to be a podcast coming up because <laughs> I have questions. And then I think to myself, you know, AI may play a role in some of this at some point where it would be easy to um, get some of this information exchanged via the computer rather than having to actually be in a particular setting. So I don't know, these are just, I have so many thoughts and ideas that both of you have stimulated in my own mind. And I hope that's true for all of our listeners, but I wanna thank both of you, Nina, and also um, Hillary for um, personal experiences and um, scientific experiences and how important it is to any of you who are experiencing lung cancer or know of someone to suggest that they um, talk to their physician about getting biomarker testing. So thank you both so much. And uh, we'll see everybody else again soon for new topics. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.